0: Good morning Northbrook. This morning we're in the gospel of Luke in chapter 21. We'll be reading verses 5 through 38. So you might want to follow along with me. Again that's Luke chapter 21 verses 5 through 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And he said to them, By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written." Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man and every day He was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning. My name is Seth, and you probably don't have a clue who I am. That's completely understandable. Um, I am not Jake Ledette, the lead pastor here, so if you're coming looking for him, I am sorry. Uh, I'm not a pastor here at all. I don't even go to this church. I'm not sure why they gave me the Britney Spears microphone, but uh, here here we are. Uh, I am filling in for Jake. Uh, He told me that y'all were launching a series out of Exodus today. We're going to be preaching through Exodus, and he needed another week to prepare, so he gave himself the flu and called me last night at 5 p.m. and said, hey, could you preach in the morning? Um, And so, uh, again, here we are. I don't preach for a living. He must have had a really, really high fever. Um, I'm not sure what he was thinking. I am a lawyer, um, uh, but seriously, I am one of the pastors at the Paradox Church. I'm a lay leader there, um, which I don't know if you know, Northbrook was born out of, uh, partly from the Paradox Church, partly from uh, the village Fort Worth and planted back in 2020. Jake and I were pastors together Um, at the Paradox for a few years before Northbrook was launched, and I love his wisdom, Um, I love his tenacity, his love for Jesus is evident um, clearly, and even though I don't know you, I don't know who you are really, um, I have a deep love and affection uh, for you um, as a pastor of the Paradox Church and knowing what Northbrook is all about and what they're doing up here, and so I am, it is a joy for me uh, to be here with you today. It's only appropriate whenever a guest pastor comes that they Uh, pick a passage out of the end times and the desolation of the earth Uh, no one can call me on it because I've already got the Britney Spears microphone so um, we have a big passage today thank you for reading it the whole thing with me It feels a little bit weighty to open the scriptures before you Um, so I'm going to pray for our time and then we'll just jump right in and uh, ask the Lord to move among us Uh, Jesus we do just pray um Uh, Just that you would move. Uh, Your scripture will not return void. You promised us that. You left it for us. And so we just pray that we would submit ourselves to it, God. Um, That we would listen to it. That it would marinate in our hearts. It would draw our attention and our affection towards you and who you are. That we would know of your goodness and your redemption. The story that you have been writing uh, from the beginning of time until now. And you continue to write it, God. And we long for the day in which you come back and return to right the wrongs, to make all things new, to restore the brokenness, to heal the wounds. God, we just pray you would do that. Jesus, come quickly and move amongst us uh, this morning. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. So we find this passage in Luke uh, 21, towards the end of Luke's gospel account. And really, it's the final story that we hear of Jesus' teaching, kind of before the crucifixion events begin to unfold. Uh, Before the plot to kill Jesus, the Last Supper, Jesus' betrayal that we might be familiar with. And importantly, this story occurs right after the story of uh, the widow giving everything that she has in the temple. The story of the widow's mites or giving her two small copper coins that she had left. And that story uh, was beautiful. I mean, she sacrificed everything she had. Even in her poverty, this widow gave all that she had to the temple, And Luke could have ended his gospel there. I mean, that would have been a nice, clean story to end the gospel with. I mean, the widow who had nothing, she comes to this temple. She sacrificed her few last possessions, giving everything in honor of God. And Jesus celebrates her honoring. I mean, how nice and clean and an easy way to end the gospel of Luke before Jesus goes to the cross. But he doesn't do that. He gives us this account, uh, this uh, this account, which scholars have dubbed the Olivet discourse. And so, my um, wondering mind immediately goes to why would Luke do this? I mean, why would he give us this kind of heavy passage right before the cross? I mean, consider his purposes. If you're familiar with the book of Luke, and you look at the beginning of Luke chapter one, you'll hear that he's writing basically a letter to his friend Theophilus. to to Theophilus and he's writing it to give him an orderly account of the events of Jesus so that he might have certainty concerning the things he, Theophilus, has been taught. So he's writing this orderly account so that Theophilus can have certainty. And if I was Theophilus or if I was in his shoes, I think I would have chose the story of the widow over this one. I think I would have had that nice, clean ending, and it would have been compelling. I mean, give it all, Theophilus. Jesus is worth it. Give everything that you have, even your last two coins. That would have been uh, really great. And then I think back, and maybe not just Luke, but like Jesus. Like why, not only does, why does Luke copy this down, but why does Jesus tell his followers these things? I mean, why did they need to know about the beautiful temple being destroyed or that that, uh, the the city of Jerusalem is going to be surrounded? I mean, he could have ignored the comments about the temple from some of his followers or he could have retorted the question with another question as Jesus often does. This seems kind of harsh and heavy and kind of burdensome on his people right before he leaves them. So my mind goes there wondering why he would have done this. And I think it's because I've been reading this passage uh, pretty wrong for most of my life. You know, there's, there's a few different ways or probably hundreds of different ways you could convey information to people. I mean, you could tell someone something. Like with my three little girls that I have, um, I could just try to tell them about the bigness of God and then still in their little brains about this magnificent, all-powerful God who holds all things together. I could tell them something or... I could say to them, hey, do you, do you want to understand the bigness of God today? And I let them wonder a little bit about what that means. And I said, I want to show you that tonight. And then they're kind of wondering throughout the day, wondering what the heck crazy dad is up to. And, and then we, maybe we have a bigger dinner because it's a special moment for our family. And I let them stay up a little bit later because I want them to remember this moment Um, And then after bath time and the sun has set and I ask them if they're ready to experience maybe the bigness of God. And with their wet hair and their bare feet, I take them outside and I carry my littlest one and we sit under the moon and the stars for just a few moments and we hear the crickets and we feel the breeze and I say, do you feel that? Do you see the stars? Do you see the moon? He's bigger than that. He's bigger than than that. See, I could tell my kids of the bigness of God, or I could put them in a moment and an experience for them to experience the weight and the heaviness of the situation. And then my three-year-old normally pulls my hair, and my five-year-old stubs her toes, and my seven-year-old talks about how it smells outside, and the moment's gone. If you have kids, you understand. So when I initially read this passage, I think Jesus is just trying to tell his disciples something. He's just trying to transmit information to them. Bad things are coming. This is going to get difficult. Get ready. But that's not what he's doing. In this moment, I think he's creating a shepherding, a pastoral moment with his disciples. He's loving his disciples and reminding him that even though it isn't going to feel like it, even though things are going to get bad, even though the world is going to physically revolt and reel, I am coming back for you. I don't want to just tell you this. I want to create this experience, this moment for you. So let me set the scene for us real quick. We have to read this account in Luke in connection with the account that's also given in Mark 13. And so we know likely that the remarks of the beauty, the grandeur of the temple were from one of his disciples or one of his followers as they were leaving the temple for the day. And Jesus briefly begins to respond to him. And then he pauses and he becomes silent. And in in his teaching, he stops and he walks them up the Mount of Olives or Olivet as Luke calls it. He walks them up there. Now, Olivet is uh, right outside of Jerusalem. It's this mountain that's specifically located close to the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And so it wouldn't have been a long walk, and he takes his followers up Olivet, Olivet where they've likely been staying for the past week since they had come into Jerusalem in Jesus' triumphal injury, and he sits them down, uh, On top of this mountain, they overlook the Kidron Valley and they can look and gaze upon the beauty of the temple covered in gold. This work of art signifying the beauty and importance of God. And sitting up on the mountaintop, then Jesus begins to answer the questions that his, his followers are asking. He begins to prophesy to his followers. This is a pastoral moment that he's creating for his people. He's not just transmitting information. He's trying to get them to experience something. He sits them down and intentionally loves them with his words that he's saying. Now, to be clear, this passage is not particularly clear Um, Whoever said clarity is kindness needed to talk to Jesus before he starts speaking because what he's doing here is hotly debated and we don't fully understand all of the things that Jesus is doing. I mean, we still debate over it and so I'm not going to pretend as, as a lawyer up here that I've had this all figured out. Frankly, I don't think we're supposed to have all of this figured out. I don't think Jesus is asking us to understand exactly how the end times are going to come about and when he is going to return. I mean, in Mark 12 or 11, he even tells us, I don't even know When I am coming back. So I don't think he's expecting that out of us today either. And whenever we spend so much time debating or contemplating those things, I think we genuinely miss the heart of who Jesus is and what he wants in this moment. But we do know that Jesus is doing at least two things in this passage. He is first simultaneously prophesying about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And then he's also tying that intimately with his second coming for some reason. Let me give you just a quick example. In verses uh, 10 and 11, he says this. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now those verses are bookend also by a discussion around the destruction of the temple. So we know that the prophecies are in the future uh, stories are tied to that. And historically we know that Jesus' prophecies around this subject do prove to be true. During the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., nations were warring against nations, and there were reports of earthquakes and famines. So historically, spoiler spoiler alert, Jesus' words are true, and they remain true today. And at the same time, we know this prophecy is also, for some reason, surrounding the time of his second coming. He's talking about that As well. So it's common in this passage to ask Is Jesus talking to his disciples that are sitting at his feet right then? Or is he also talking to us at the end time about his end times and his second coming? And I think it's appropriate that we can say, Yes, it's both instructive for them and it's also instructive for us somehow. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the passage uh, quickly and pull out what I think are some critical things in this passage. And then I want to spend the remainder of our time looking primarily at what I think Jesus wanted his followers to experience and feel in this Olivet Discourse. So verse 5 through 11, I'm going to read them again. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Okay, let's stop there. Easing into this passage, I mean, clearly Jesus is up to something. I mean, one of his followers just randomly comments on the beauty of the temple, and immediately Jesus responds with, this place will be destroyed brick by brick. I mean, that's not like a clear Jesus juke. I don't know, like, what is. This is good old-fashioned Jesus here. And it's a pretty uncomfortably shocking statement. I mean, but by the way, his statements come true in 70-ish AD when the temple is dismantled by the Roman army and they destroy it brick by brick and remove the gold that encased every stone. So Jesus' words continue to stand the test of time. Now, naturally, upon hearing this, his followers would be concerned. I mean, they're looking to Jesus to give him some type of clarity or comfort around the scary things that he is saying. What is going to happen? And Jesus doesn't really give them that clarity. He warns them not to be led astray by the the flashy Instagram preacher or the gospel influencer claiming that they have the newest uh, Jesus trend and they know what is right. He says, don't go after them. They are not me. Do not follow them. And then he goes on in verses 9, 10, and 11 to warn that things are going to become more difficult. I mean, one might say terrifying to some extent. There's wars and tumults and earthquakes and famines and pestilences. And in these moments, Jesus knows we are going to long for comfort. We're going to long for someone or something to follow We want to be safe and secure. We want our salvation easily, and we want it from someone that's on a screen or someone that's an influencer who makes us feel good in the moment, but then whenever we leave those moments, we feel wholly inadequate at this life that we have before us. But Jesus is saying, stay the course. Remember my words. Follow me, me alone. But underneath all of this, do you hear the undertone of Jesus. I mean, do you hear the depth of his words that he's wrestling with? I mean, he's telling them significantly, uh, graciously, humbly, he's telling them, I won't be here with you. I know these last three years of my ministry have been incredible, but I am going to the cross. I have to go. Things are going to get difficult, They will get scary. You are going to long for salvation. You are not going to see me. And Jesus is telling this to his followers a week after the city of Jerusalem literally shut down to celebrate his arrival before the cross. Jesus is telling them, I have to leave you. But then in verses 12 through 19, um, it gets a little bit worse. Um, Not only is Jesus leaving them, Jesus is promising persecution to them. So 12 through 19, it says this, but before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your mind not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Persecution and following Jesus go hand in hand, and I think we often forget that. It's all throughout the scriptures, and importantly, here in this last discourse that Jesus gives, he's promising his followers that they will be persecuted, they will be chased, they will be handed over. They will be given to the authorities and called to account for their faith, but not only to the authorities or the religious leaders who disagree with them, but also family members and friends and siblings are going to persecute them or ask them difficult questions and and wonder if they've kept their sanity or not. I think it's a sobering reminder for us in our day and our comfortable age often. But in these six verses, we begin to see Jesus offer just a glimmer of hope, maybe, if we hear underneath his words. In 5 through 11, he told his followers that he's leaving. But in these verses, 12 through 19, he's promising to them that he will be with them. Just like we sang, there's someone in the fire with me. He will be with them. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom He tells them that not a hair on your head will perish, meaning that even though he is leaving, he's watching over them and ruling over their ultimate salvation. That no one who is in Jesus, who loves Jesus, is going to be snatched out of his hand. That even though they may kill the body, those found in Jesus, he holds the soul and cannot be taken from him. And so he promises in verse 19 if they endure, if they steadfastly pursue Jesus, even though he is gone, they will gain their lives. They will have salvation in the midst of chaos, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of death. So Jesus is leaving. Things are going to get bad for his followers. Persecution and death is coming, but he promises the followers, I will be with you always. And then we get to verses 20 through 33. Now, this, these next few search sections are, are broken up in your Bibles, obviously, with different headings, but I think we have to read this all as one section. Jesus is going back into his mode about talking about two different things simultaneously about the destruction of the temple and in Jerusalem and also his second coming, so all of this goes together. And now here's what I think Jesus is doing. We won't go through it all, but here's what I think he is doing. I think he's answering his followers' questions who are legitimately asking questions, what's going to happen, When will the destruction of the temple be what signs should we watch for I think he's answering those questions for them But then he's using that answer to springboard his followers to understand and know that he is coming back to right all of these wrongs He is leaving now, but he is coming back. I mean listen to how the discourse culminates in verses 27 and 28 And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Church, he is coming back for us. He is riding in the clouds and all people will see him exalted. All people will see him glorified. All people will see him magnified. Listen to these other scriptures. Matthew twenty four twenty seven. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Hebrews nine twenty eight. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Or Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Church, he is coming back for us. And then look how beautifully he concludes his thoughts here. I mean, verses 8 through 9, he says, I am leaving you. Things are going to get hard. And then 15 and 19, he says, but I will be with you. I will give you wisdom. I will be protecting you. And then 28 and 29, never forget church. I am coming back with great power and great glory. I mean, people get all sorts of uh, distracted and, and tripped up in trying to predict the future and understand the second coming outlined in this passage. I mean, we spend so much time arguing and debating when Jesus what Jesus is specifically referencing, and I just don't know if it's necessary for our obedience in our everyday life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with deep theological study and deep convictions and thought, but it, when it becomes an impediment to your obedience to Jesus, or, or maybe put a different way, when theological study replaces your love for Jesus and obedience to what he commands and service to who he is, I think we miss the point sometimes. He's moving his followers here in this passage from a place of understanding to a place of experiencing that he is coming back for them. Yeah, but, but when are you coming back? It doesn't matter. I'm coming back. Yeah, but what's exactly going to be happening? It doesn't matter. I'm coming back for you. Yeah, but what, what should we be looking for? Like, what should we be expi- It doesn't matter. I'm coming back for you. We get caught up uh, and ignore everything else. We get caught up. I think often I did, at least when studying this. Pass uh, in verse thirty-two. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this takes place. We get caught up there and we miss verse thirty-four. I mean, Jesus doesn't give us clarity on a timeline or a time frame. But what he does do is ask his followers, you and me, those who love Jesus. He asks us to understand that he is coming back and we have to be ready. Listen to what he does in verse 34. I mean, Jesus just spent 30 verses in chapter 21 preparing his followers, getting them to the point of understanding that he's leaving, things are going to be difficult, there will be persecution, some of you are going to be killed. He's been painting this beautiful picture of his return, and then he gets to verse 34 and he says this, but watch yourselves. Be on your guard. Take care. Give attention to. Be aware. I mean, Jesus culminates this pastoral moment with watch yourselves. He moves away from the prophecy. He moves away from the destruction of the temple, away from the difficult things to come, and he is making it personal to his followers who are sitting right in front of him. I mean, remember, he's up on Olivet with his followers and overlooking the beautiful, immaculate temple. I just imagine Jesus just glaring at the temple the first first 30 or so verses, just talking about the destruction of the temple, the, the hard things coming. He's talking about that gazing over Jerusalem, and I think he ends that teaching, he turns to his disciples, his followers, and with love and compassion filling his eyes, he looks at them and says, but you watch yourselves. I mean, this baffles me. Watch yourselves. This, this like snaps me back to reality and into the present as to where we are. It makes me sit up straight and focus my attention on, on Jesus' words. Five paragraphs he's spent trying to get his followers' attention, and I don't think he's creating this pastoral moment just so we can figure out uh, what's going to happen into the future. I don't think he's doing that. I think he has something more critical for them. He's saying, I am coming back, and you have to watch yourselves. I think it should cause us to sober up. Like I wonder how often uh, Jesus has given us personally this warning or this exhortation and we've just ignored his words. Uh, How many times has he said, I know things are going to be difficult. I know that there's brokenness and pain in your world. I know that you are suffering, that you are anxious and you are worried. I know that you have been hurt. Hear me, child. Hear me, son. Hear me, daughter. I know those things, but I am coming back and you have to watch Yourself. I know you're in pain. I know it hurts. I know this is hard. I am walking with you. I grieve with you. I cry with you. I will hold your hand and carry you through these hard times, but child, you have to watch yourself. Don't misconstrue what I am saying. Jesus is concerned for us and he, he weeps over the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that we experience in this world. He loves you and desires your ultimate healing and restoration. I mean, hear his heart for the women and children in this passage in verse 23. He grieves and he weeps for them. But more than just placating to us, he's being honest with us that the world is plagued with brokenness and some of, for some reason under the sovereignty of God, these things have to come to pass. The coming restoration is not here yet. He will right the wrongs. He will bring justice. He is coming in the power and glory. But children, hear me as you are waiting for me. Watch yourselves. Your hearts are going to be prone to wander. And then Jesus specifically tells them to watch for a few things as as they long for his return. In verses 34, uh, he says this. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and, and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. I know some of us get tired of waiting for Jesus to come back. I mean, so we just pursue things uh, that distract us. I mean, whether it's entertainment or experiences or events or parties or gatherings or activities, kids, sports, whatever it is, this is that dissipation or carousing that Jesus references. He isn't here yet, so we might as well have a good enough time while we wait for him. So we just distract ourselves over the trivialities of life and begin to forget that he is coming back for us. I mean, it happens subtly, or it could happen uh, forcefully. How does it happen uh, suddenly, subtly? Have you ever wondered how you're able to like watch a whole season on Netflix in like two days? Um, you like look, or you look up at work, and it's like 7 p.m., and you realize you're supposed to be home at 6 p.m. for dinner with the kids. Uh, Or you find yourself at a coffee shop working from home or trying to study and you're just mindlessly just trying to find the end of the internet and we just distract ourselves. And sometimes the distraction isn't as subtle. I mean, it's intentional and and it's big when dealing with the pain and suffering of this world is too much. I mean, let's be honest, going out with friends just sounds so much more fun than dealing with the present. And so we go out and we party every weekend or every holiday, every, every chance we get, and we would rather self-soothe our souls with like the next car or the next big purchase or moving houses or renovating. We consume and we try the latest restaurants and we travel to the mountains to see the best resorts or the beautiful beaches. We can't be stationary because we can't deal with the present that we're in right now. We have to keep going. But we get to the end of ourselves and our hearts are still heavy, and no lasting satisfaction has been gained, and we just keep looking for something to save us from the weight of the world and escape the monotony of sin and the brokenness that we find ourselves in. So we forget to watch ourselves, and instead we distract ourselves into some type of spiritual death. And at the same time, many of us are prone just to kind of seek to numb ourselves from the brokenness and devastation of the world. I mean, we just check out. For some of us, we use substances like alcohol or narcotics to blunt the pain that we might feel. Or maybe it's something less scandalous uh, than drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's like social media it causes us to check out from our reality and pass the time while we feel nothing, aimlessly scrolling and searching. Our eye is not even focusing on the screen that's before us. We just look to pass the time with an acti- activity that makes us think we're engaged with this world, but in reality, we're far from it. We, we don't experience real life. This is so much easier than graciously disciplining our children or lovingly engaging with our neighbor in some capacity. We just go through the motions disengaged from life, our friends quietly wondering where we have gone. We don't feel the range of emotions that the Lord has given us and we don't engage in the relationships around us. We step back from Jesus and his, ignore his call to us. We don't hear him when he says he's coming back to right all of the wrongs. We just n- are numb We're just drunk, seeking to pass the time painlessly. We don't watch ourselves, and instead, we just numb ourselves to some type of spiritual death. And then sometimes we swing hard, I think the opposite way. I mean, instead of checking out on this life, we begin to check on everything that this life has to throw at us. I mean, the the cares of this life become so overwhelming. There's so many things that we have to think on or have a position on or try to fix or change. We have our children to protect, we have our reputation that's important, success that we're chasing, the house that we're building, the relationships that we're in or the desires that we have. Or it could be something meaningful. I mean the world is telling us that we have to be passionate about something or or pursue something like climate change or protecting your gun rights or freedom of speech or expressing ourselves. The crazy thing is though that there will always be something else that we have to be worrying about and doing. And regardless of which political party you find yourself in or which party is in power or which country that you live in, how much money you have or you don't have, tomorrow there will be more worries for you and the day after that and the month after that and the year after that. And sometimes we check in on everything. We move from one critical issue to the next, one cause to the next. And Jesus, I think, is honest in this passage. I mean, he's honest about the devastation. He's honest about the pain and the turmoil that's in this world. He knows the situation. It does not surprise him, and he is not worried about it. But when we step in and try to fix everything, when we begin to worry about all these things, we forget to watch ourselves, and instead we worry ourselves to some type of spiritual death. And if you're anything like me, Uh, We flow in and out of each of these things depending on the situation. So one day I'm distracted, the next day I'm numb, and by Friday I'm worrying about this week starting next week again. The startling thing, I think, about this passage is that we forget, when we forget that Jesus is coming back, when we forget that he is coming back, what should be celebrated Jesus' glorious return in the clouds, righting all of the wrongs, redeeming his people, restoring the brokenness, whenever we forget about that, that return becomes something much, much more dire for us. If we're not watching ourselves, Jesus' words at the end of 34 become terrifying. In 34, it says, that day Jesus' return will come suddenly upon you like a trap. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that that day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. There is no escaping his return. So, Jesus, in his final few days with his followers, he lovingly interrupts them when they're talking about the temple. He graciously walks them up Olivet. He sits them down and he tells them, I am leaving, but I am coming back for you. Be ready. Watch yourselves. The beautiful thing about Jesus, I think, um, is what he calls us to. He isn't asking you or me to fix anything. Right in this passage, he isn't asking you to redeem anything. He's not asking you to protect the temple that's about to be destroyed. He's not asking you to stand guard around Jerusalem. You don't have to tribe up to defend your nation or your rights. You see, he is the one who is doing everything for us always. He is the one that is going away. He is going to the cross to redeem you. He is going to the cross to protect you. He is going to come back in glory and power and might and redeem it. You, son, you, daughter, you just have to be ready for his return. You have to watch yourselves and pray. Can you imagine Theophilus reading this letter? I mean, he's reading this orderly account of what Luke has set out for him. The miracles that Jesus has performed, the value and worth he puts on women and children throughout his life, the the warning he gives to the wealthy, the widow who puts in her two mites at at the end, giving everything to Jesus that's inspiring. Then he opens this portion, and he begins to hear Luke whisper to Theophilus, Jesus is warning us, Theophilus, you can trust him. He is good, there will be persecution, there will be destruction, they are going to tear down the temple brick by brick, but Theophilus, he is coming back for us. Will you be ready? Don't let that day come upon you, Theophilus, like a trap. I imagine Theophilus rolling up the scroll or putting away the papyrus, closing the email, whatever it is, and and pondering for a moment. Scholars believe Luke wrote this letter uh, in the early 60s A.D. And in a few short years, after Theophilus has read this, 70 A.D., Theophilus will live through the words of Jesus. Jerusalem will be surrounded, and then the temple will begin to fall, brick by brick, and he'll see the destruction of the temple. Theophilus, You can trust him. Be ready. He's coming back for us. Church, he's coming back for us. Let's pray. Jesus, um, uh, you are coming back. And we have so much we feel like we have to do. Our to-do lists are just endless. The activities, the things that we have going on are hard. God, we do just numb ourselves, or we do just distract ourselves, or we just busy ourselves with so much. God, I just pray that we would heed your warning in this difficult passage that you are coming back. You are coming in glory and might to right the wrongs, to make all things right. Just let us be ready. Let us watch ourselves. Let us pray, let us fast, let us be in community and ask the difficult questions of one another of, of what are we distracting ourselves with? What are we longing for? What comfort do we have? What comfort do we need? And help us turn our eyes back to Jesus who's sitting on the mountain looking at his disciples saying, but watch yourselves, I'm coming back to redeem you and restore you. Jesus, I pray that we would prepare our hearts, that we would respond to you now in this worship that whatever it is, whatever we're holding on to whatever we have distracted ourselves with, whatever we think is going to bring us salvation, I pray that today would be the day that we release that that we would give it up and that we would know that you do all things you are going to the cross to redeem and restore us, to to fix the brokenness, to save us from our sins Jesus let us give it to you let us trust you Let us follow you in all things and let us be ready for you are coming back for us and let it be glorious. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.